from KCRW. This is Nocturne. Hi, this is Vanessa. I want to let you know that this episode contains topic matter related to suicide and its painful aftermath. There's nothing graphic, but it could be triggering for some people. My brother, for the good part of my life, he was my best friend. He was younger than me, two and a half years younger, so I was kind of protective. He was born on Christmas Eve, and my parents told me that he was my Christmas present. This was my earliest memory. It was a really, really intense sibling partnership. We would just sit and we would talk for hours and hours about everything. Like, he knew everything about me. I knew everything about him. Like, when I got married, we actually had our own song in my wedding, you know, as brother and sister, and it was uh, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. And if we were driving around, we would just sing it at the top of our lungs. And at my wedding, it was right at the end of, of the, the whole big party, so we were just a, a hot mess. My hair's all coming out and done, and his tux is all untucked, and we are just locked in each other's eyes, flinging each other around. And, like, that's, that's how I want to remember him that full of vitality and full of joy and full of love. After Carson died, I just made camp at my parents' house and I was sitting on the bed that he slept in while he was staying there. And across the room is the bathroom. And as I'm just kind of in this space of just zoning out and staring across the room, the light on the bathroom went from completely off to completely on. There was no little flicker. It was very much off to on, and I'm the only one in the room. And right when that happened, I got this overwhelming sense of presence. And it's just something that I cannot, where some of these things just defy language in some ways, but I quietly got out of bed and I turned the light off. And I said, I will never speak of this. (laughs) More from Nocturne in a moment. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Sally Spencer Thomas is an award winning psychologist based in Colorado. She's the mother of three boys and an avid marathoner. High achieving is a trait that runs in the family. My brother was a, a 34 year old business leader and father of two. And 
by all external accounts of how we tend to measure success. Um, my brother had all of that, all of the trappings. He was wealthy and had homes and cars and clothes and leadership, and he was also just beloved by so many, so many people. But what he hid from a lot of people was some pretty crushing depression that he, he fought really hard against for a really long time. He actually was diagnosed as bipolar condition back when he was a sophomore in college and nobody was really talking a lot about that stuff back then. It was like the late 80s and he didn't have any peers who experienced this and so he kind of wrestled with it for a long time and mostly set forth to prove that he was fine. He's just fine and not to worry about him. And so he did some pretty extraordinary things as a young person, very you know, incredible, successful endeavors. Carson was actually kicked out of school in his sophomore year of college because of erratic behavior, which is what led their father to bring him to a psychiatrist and receive a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. That year away from school, he got a job selling encyclopedias. And at only 19 years old, he put a sales team together in three states that became so successful, they were sent to Hawaii and Rome. It was pretty exciting for a 19-year-old to have that much success out of the gate, and it helped him find his gifts. So after he went back to school and graduated, he got a, a pretty big, fat job in a multinational insurance company. And he was doing really well there, but he, at you know, age 24, 25, thought, huh, I wonder why I'm working so hard to make somebody else all this money. I could probably do the same thing on my own. So he left, and he created a competing insurance company against this other company. And I mean, he was bold and um, visionary and just had incredible courage. And then one summer... He had a, his first full-blown episode of mania and just destroyed his life really in a really, really short period of time. And it was really scary. Like his depressions had been hard, but he managed it. Like he found a way always. The mania was just totally not him. And he, you know, left his family and bought a million dollar loft in downtown Denver. And he bought $80,000 car, laptops for these employees that he no longer had because he left his business partner. And he was really agitated and really mean and just kind of became estranged from all of us. I didn't know who he was anymore. I'd look into his eyes. I couldn't find him. And, and that was a huge loss. Like, where did you go? What happened to my brother? And it was really scary because I also... You know, at that point, I was 16 years in being a mental health professional or studying these issues, and I, I knew what was happening, like in my head, but I didn't know how to help. And all these fancy things that we're supposed to do, it just feels different when it's your loved one. It's confusing what your role is, and, and honestly, it's being just wicked. Um, I would call him, and I'd be like, you know, you're all right. This doesn't seem like you. It doesn't doesn't seem good. And he would say stuff like, you don't know me. I don't need you. And then he would hang up on me. And that was pretty devastating because I knew 
we all knew he was in trouble uh, and we couldn't reach him. He was just so angry and he would like pick fights with us and stuff. So I would uh, and it'd be a big puddle on the floor. I missed him and I was, I was so sad. I missed my brother. I would look into his eyes and I'd be like, I don't know who you are anymore. It was like a different person. And my husband would have to intervene sometimes because he, he, he knew how to get me. He knew how to upset me and he would be really provocative. And, and my husband would just say, you can't call your sister anymore. And it was just a very sad and scary time. But I would call, you know, being in the field, I would call my friends and my colleagues, and I'm like, please give me the magic, like something, something I can do to reach them. And they just never had anything that I felt like would be useful. But one of the things they said was, you know, the train's going to crash eventually. And just when, when it does, just be there ready to catch them. And so when... Thanksgiving rolled around that year, and he met with his accountant, and his accountant said, dude, you're broke, you're done, you have no more money. That was kind of like the final straw. And really quickly, he seemed to flip-flop from agitated, aggressive, and mean mania to the worst depression. He was so, so filled with self-loathing and regret. And he came home. For the first time in, in months, he came home. And I honestly think he came home to say goodbye to us. But at the time, we were so excited. We were so relieved to have him back. Sally went over to her parents' house for their regular Thursday night family dinner. Carson was there. She told them about a book she had just read by a psychologist who also had bipolar disorder. It offered a hopeful perspective on managing the illness. So I said, look, here's this other person. Like, she's going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. It's going to be all right. And, uh, and he turned to me and he said, but Sally, it's madness. And then four days later, he killed himself. Can I ask how he killed himself? I'd rather not say. That's totally fine. Yeah. But he, he orchestrated his death in a way that uh, he tried to spare people, I think. And I never saw anything. I never saw the death scene, but in my head, I've replayed it a million times. It's Suicide is uh, it's so horrible. It's so horrible for the loved ones left behind to think that someone you love so much was so desperate so desperate in their pain that they died this way, alone. You know, feeling unlovable, it's really hard. How old was he? He was 34. He was actually, uh, he died two weeks before his 35th birthday, which also put it uh, two weeks before Christmas. And... In that year, in 2004, it was also the year we had the Asian tsunami. So, uh, months later, I remember kind of looking back at kind of how the whole world seemed to be responding to that international disaster and thinking, that's also what suicide feels like to a family. 
I mean, it's just the immediate impact is just so overwhelming. It feels like drowning and you can barely get a breath of air. Everything's on its head, nothing makes sense. And for me, everything became super scary. I, uh, I'd have panic attacks and uh, I would be driving out to the airport to pick up people who were coming to his memorial service and I would forget where I was going or what was happening and then phew, I'd come to and I'd be driving like 85 miles an hour and I'm like, where am I? Um, I had tremendous amounts of fear for my kids' safety. Like, it was one of these, your whole belief system just crashes and there's nothing you trust anymore for a period of time. And then and then I had to go back to work because I had had a baby that September and I had burned up all my leave. And, and that experience was definitely a feeling of, like, coming up, being forced to come up and looking around the landscape and everything looks different. Everything's moved and... For me, nothing mattered anymore. I didn't want to work. I didn't care. And this was a job I loved. And uh, I was just going through the motions and, and the ripple effects and the aftershocks and all of these kind of tsunami-type metaphors is, you know, definitely an experience of a family bereaved by suicide. It just seems to never end. And every turn, there's some other really difficult thing to grapple with. And it goes on much longer than a support system is ready to stand by you. Although I was really blessed. I had a lot of amazing friends and, and colleagues who understood. Some of the early support that Sally got from friends surprised her. On New Year's Eve of that year, New Year's Eve day, I got a call from a dear friend of mine from graduate school, and she had lost her father figure around the same time. And she reached out and said, uh, I just want you to be open to some things. Now, she's had was born and raised in South American culture and so had maybe a different world perspective on this stuff. But she said, just be open. Maybe Carson will uh, come through and visit you. And it might be like a flicker of a light or a buzz on a radio. And I was like, whatever. Whatever, that's just silly. That stuff doesn't happen, And uh, but thank you for sharing kind of thing. And then that very night, I don't know, probably 11 o'clock or so that night, I'm sitting there in my parents' house. So Carson died December 7th, so it was the whole holiday season, and it just felt like one thing after another, like... First, we had his memorial service on the 13th, and then it was my parents' anniversary, and then it was his birthday, and then it was Christmas, and it was just, oh, are we ever going to get through this holiday season? And so this was kind of the 24-hour period leading up to New Year's Eve, and I had just been hunkered down at my parents' house, and it was sad. Like, there was all of these lights up and and all of these trinkets about the holidays and I I was up in their guest room and this is the place where Carson stayed so there's actually still some things of his in the room there was a duffel bag under the bed that he had been using and uh, little things I was just finding when I was staying there and so I was just sitting there and it was the last place my brother slept the last place that you know he lived for those last two weeks and so I'm just sitting there in the bed and it's dark and it's quiet. My mother's got these uh, 
candles in the window. It's kind of a New England thing. You put these little plastic candles in your window, and so they're there, and they're glowing. And uh, I'm just lost in my thoughts, staring across the room. And then it's unmistakable. The light on the bathroom went from completely off to completely on. And it was shocking. It was completely shocking because that's not supposed to, that's not how it happens. <laughs> and as, as my friend had anticipated for me, like that was no like flicker. That was no like little buzz on a radio. That was like unmistakable light off to light on. And I went, holy shit. And then the room just like crackled with energy. It was just um, terrifying is just the word that comes to mind. It was just overwhelmingly terrifying. And then I felt like, all right, that's it. I'm not telling anybody this. Got up, turned the light off and tried to sleep. I was scared because it felt so intense and unexpected and, you know, I'm sitting there in this dark room and by myself and so part of it is like I couldn't make sense of it and part of it is holy shit now I'm going crazy too <laughs> like I'm losing it here and then uh, in the morning over the next 12 hours or so every single one of my immediate family members had something some kind of connection with him Sally's mother found a golf ball branded with a resort in Mexico poking up under melting snow as they were loading unsent Christmas presents into the car. She and Carson were both golfers. And so we go back in the house, and she calls his wife, and she says, isn't this the place where Carson visited not too recently? And she said, yeah, Joyce, don't you know? That's the place where he shot his hole-in-one. Now, shooting a hole-in-one is a really big deal, and my brother never told my mother. And so this is how she found out <laughs> that he shot a hole-in-one. So there was that, and then I went back, you know, I delivered the packages, and I came back, and, and there's my father with his head in his hands in his study. And my father is like an atheist with a capital A. When you're dead, you're worm dirt, and that is it. Sally asked her father if he was okay, if anything in particular had happened, other than the grief over Carson's death, that they were all struggling with. And he says, I know it's just my mind playing tricks on me but I went down for a nap this afternoon and just like clear as day, your brother came to me and he said, Dad, I'm so sorry. Sally thought back to Christmas Eve, Carson's birthday. As she and her family were bringing packages in at the front door, the Christmas tree across the room, covered with delicate ornaments, toppled over for no reason. None of the ornaments broke. I kind of put these things together. I'm like, oh, he was with us. It was his birthday. Of course he was with us. And that was just his way of saying, hey, I am. And then there were the powerful, vivid dreams that occurred repeatedly. The kind of dreams that feel so real that you question if they were really dreams at all. You can feel everything and smell everything and see everything. And in the dream, Carson visits me. And the dreams were were really intense and really, at first, very disturbing. He would come into my room, and he was dead. And so that's the part that was disturbing. Like, his eyes weren't right, and his skin wasn't right. And I'd be like, why are you, what is going on here? What's happening? And, 
And then he would sit down and I'm like, you're still my brother. You're still my brother. And we would get into these really intense conversations and we would just talk, 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 talk. And then I would hug him and he would leave. And this happened over and over again. And, uh, and one of the times that it happened, his really close friend from elementary school called me up and said, I had a really strange dream about your brother last night. He came to me as a dead person and sat on my bed. And I said, why are you dead? And it, we chatted. I said, Greg, that's the repeating dream that I've had for like three or four nights now. When I had those intense dreams and he was dead, it was really unnerving. Uh, I didn't want to see him dead. I, I didn't. I don't, and I don't know why he came to me dead, but I think it was to say, like, I'm dead. <laughs> like, make no mistake about it, I'm gone. Because uh, there was such longing for, from all of us of wanting him back again. But then after a while, that was not a big deal. And then I wanted those connections, and, I, it, and it meant that, like, here we were just, like, just, you know, reaching out to one another and finding our way back to each other in this really strange way. And oh, it just was so powerful. It was so moving to find him again. Having that connection with him was an absolute healing experience. There were other strange events in the months after Carson's death like when his picture randomly came up on his mother-in-law's computer screensaver, followed minutes later by a message from a psychic she had seen years earlier. And the message just said, are you trying to reach me? So we all thought, all right, well, what the heck, we'll go visit the psychic. And I had never been to a psychic before. I didn't know what to expect. Before the appointment with the psychic, Sally sent her brother a silent message. And Carson, if you could bring the dog this dog that we had growing up, then I'll know it's you. So all she knows is that we just made this appointment together. She doesn't know our last names. She just knows our first names. Um, she says, uh, there's someone here with us. He's crossed over recently. He's related to the two of you, but in different ways. And then she says, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, and she says, uh, I'm filled with toxicity, and that could mean a lot of things, but to me in the moment it meant he had been using a lot of drugs and alcohol towards the end. And then uh, she says, and he's brought a dog with him, and it's a dog who was helped over a while ago. So off and on it went, these really intense dreams in the first five months, and these... Uh, intense experiences with my family members around these coincidences and everything. And then really the, probably the most powerful one was the end, the last, the last dream, I call it. Before Carson's death, Sally and her husband had planned to renew their vows and take a trip to Hawaii for their 10th anniversary. They were still deeply grieving, but decided to go ahead with their plans. Neither of us had been before and we were very excited and it's on the water, and these Adirondack chairs looking out onto the sea, and I was like, oh, God, I can just relax in here. I can just let it go. And 
you know, just find this place that's just so peaceful. So that last night we settled in and I, I went to sleep and I had this really, really intense dream. He comes to me in the dream, but this time he's healthy and he's young, like in the prime of his life. And he's wearing this red dirt t-shirt, which was part of the touristy thing in the area. There was a lot of darkly tinted earth that they used to color these shirts. And so I'm like, you're here, aren't you? You're here. And we walk outside and he takes me over to the, the pool that was on the grounds. And it was just a small rectangular pool that was laid inside the earth. And it was way too cold for us to swim in it while we were there. But in the dream, everything's warm and perfect. And so we start wading into the pool and we get into the pool and the pool is like this really warm, viscousy kind of liquid that's just comforting. And he gives me this huge hug and we slowly start to sink deeper and deeper into the pool. And then we hit the bottom of the pool and he looks me in the eye and he says, I gotta go. And then he just dissolves in my hug and he just completely disappears. And I wake up. And at this point, his visits to me have been regular and meaningful. And like, I got him. I still got him. And, and when he said that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Like, you can't leave me again. I just found you again. And I, oh, and I woke up and I'm just furious and I'm screaming. And my husband's like, ugh. And I, and I run over to the bathroom and I get on the floor and I put my head on the toilet and I'm crying and I'm screaming. I'm like, you can't. Okay, maybe you, this is it. You're going to say goodbye here in Hawaii, but you cannot leave me. Like, you cannot not come see me anymore. I'm just beside myself. And I, uh, my poor husband, <laughs> he's just like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with this woman? But he's patient, and he's just sitting there listening quietly and nodding. Sally and her husband were scheduled to fly home the next night. But they had time before the flight, so they went into town the next morning to get one more souvenir, a Hawaiian shirt for the baby. They found a tourist shop that had what they were looking for. It's the Red Dirt T-shirt shop. I'm like, oh, Red Dirt T-shirt shop, let's go in. And so I'm in the back rack, flicking through the, the clearance section, and there it is. I find my little Hawaiian suit for my, my little buddy, and I'm in line ready to uh, pay for this stuff. And I'm behind a woman who's talking to the clerk at the register. And so I'm right there. So I hear what they're talking about. And she's talking to the, the woman about the woman's daughter who had apparently died of, at, at a young age, a child who had died maybe of cancer or something. And they're talking about the, the physician who was treating this little girl and the fact that he had killed himself. And then it's my turn up at the counter. And I say, like a a true person out of her mind, I say, hi, uh, I've been here in line and I overheard your conversation about the physician who killed himself. Last night, my brother, who also killed himself, came to me in a dream wearing a red dirt t-shirt, so I think I'm supposed to talk to you. Whoa, that's not an everyday conversation, but she didn't miss a beat. And she said, your brother's fine. He'll be okay. 
That physician that one we were talking about, he came to me in my dreams too, asking for forgiveness. And I said, of course. And your brother's going to be okay. So I paid for a little suit and I walked out on the street. And I turned to my husband and I said, see, you cannot make this shit up. <laughs> oh no. And it's just become like this little window for me. This little window up to the possibility of there's so much we don't know. Like before this happened, I didn't have a framework for thinking about this or understanding it at all. And I feel like this was his gift to me. He, he, he lifted up a veil a little bit and let me peek through it. And it's, it's giving me a, a, quite an appreciation for the mystery. Now he never came back in the same way he did in those first five months ever, where I, I definitely felt like him. Uh, I do feel sometimes he like he's lurking somewhere and he's kicking me in the butt and opening doors and stuff like that. But I never felt like that sense of him with me, that electrifying, intense sense of presence. Um, yeah, my brother's larger than life, so it's not uh, it's not surprising to me that all of all of those experiences that we had were not subtle. <laughs> they were big, and uh, really couldn't miss some kinds of things. Haven't had any of those since that that time he said goodbye. But that little window that I had is such a gift. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and also receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which is managed by Kristen Lepore. Thank you to Nick White. There's more to Sally's story than her own experience of losing her brother and then finding connection to him after his death. In her work as a psychologist specializing in suicide prevention, she started hearing others recount similar stories of spiritual connections to loved ones they lost to suicide. Sally and a colleague embarked on research to explore the prevalence of these phenomena, and the response was huge. Over 1,700 people completed a survey about what they experienced after their loved one's death. The majority had perceived some kind of presence, whether it was a dream or coincidence, that they felt to be a connection with their loved one. About 75% of them said it was helpful to them in their grief. You can find links to Sally Spencer Thomas's work and her podcast about suicide prevention, Hope Illuminated, at our website, nocturnepodcast.org, in the show notes for this episode. There are also links there for resources if you are bereaved by suicide, or if you're worried about someone who needs support now. Till next time, be well, and thanks for listening.